for UK investors only. This podcast is in association with Janice Henderson Investors. For promotional purposes, capital at risk. The past performance of an investment is not a reliable guide to its future performance. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as advice. Hi everyone and welcome to the Master Investors Podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by the team behind Henderson European Focus Trust. We'll be talking about why Europe is a stock pickers market, but we'll also be discussing Europe's competitive edge in a sector that is poised to become one of the biggest industries on the planet. Here's the podcast and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi and welcome to the show everybody. Today I'm joined by John Bennett and Tom O'Hara and they're the joint managers of Henderson European Focus Trust. Welcome to the show guys. Thank you. To begin with, just give our listeners a a brief overview of the trust and its investment parameters. I guess the clue's in the name. The the emphasis is all the greater on focus since the AGM in January where we got shareholder approval to lower the ceiling on the number of stocks. So having previously had a range of 45 to 60 holdings, we now have the old floor as the new ceiling, which is maximum 45 stocks, and the floor is 35. And we we expect to sort of, if you like, cruise at anywhere around 40-ish names in, in the portfolio. I think the crucial thing about it is it's not an index fund. It's aware of the benchmark index, but it in no way tries to replicate a European index. It wants to do something different from that index, which is, which means it's truly active. And I think investors should, should consider it as a collection of stocks, idiosyncratic stocks with idiosyncratic stock-specific risk and return right. characteristics. That is, it's about stocks. And why would anybody want to look to invest in Europe at the moment? Because obviously... You know, the market's looking weak. The, the European banking sector seems to be on the verge of collapse. So what, what is there to like out there in, in the European markets? I, I love that question. I'll tell you why. UK investors in European equities have recently and might still be sitting on all-time highs. Let's pause on that. You're sitting there on all-time highs if you've invested in Europe from a sterling base. You made Somewhere in the 20s last year, I think the trust was around about 24% gain. And I've always said, European GDP, I mean, unfortunately, I've said this for 30-odd years, European GDP, European macro, European geopolitics have nothing to do with European stock markets. Europe is a collection of companies born in Europe, European stock markets. Mm -hmm. European focused trust is a collection of companies born in Europe, selling their wares globally. That's that's the key point. It's not about European banks or European GDP or European telecoms or European oil stocks. There's a whole bunch of other things that you can actually own and you certainly don't need to own German GDP, Italian GDP, etc. Mm. The macro is not the stock market. So that aversion to sort of European stock markets has not really served investors very well, has it, recently? And I suppose it's also led to a lot of opportunities opening up in terms of you know the, the value that's on offer. So what, what sort of criteria do you look for in a potential investment? I would say the thing that sort of unites the, the investment process in our team and the way we approach the trust is we'll look for things like management change, turnaround potential, and uh, a route to, to realising that change as well. You know, it's got to be on a, 
couple of years time frame. You don't want to be waiting 10 years to, to see that change. And in that sense, you know, as, as John was just saying, Europe's a collection of stocks and there are always a number of stocks um, changing, you know, within the market. They're changing their management teams, new teams come in and, and see what can be done better and what shouldn't be done, what should be done. Um, and that creates opportunities. That's what we look for. I was struck when I was flicking through the annual report, particularly by a chart that showed the market capitalization of technology stocks in the US against the market cap of the European markets and the, the relative outperformance of the US market versus European markets. Is all that outperformance simply down to the fact that you know the US is tech heavy and there's you know there's big fang stocks have been driving the market? Or is there something sort of deeper at play going on? I don't think you can put all of it down to that. I think that's a major reason. I mean, if you, it's a sort of one of the, the drivers. You know, it's a real dynamo within that. There's no doubt about it. We're in a monster tech bull market. And tech is monster in US indices relative to European indices. European indices, and again, we don't buy indices, but the, the European indices can be perhaps compared with Japan in a stock market sense in that it's more of a value construct. Growth is in, value's out. That's part of it. Tech is in, and that's part of it. But the other part is, is a lot of it's been justified by European earnings growth relative to uh, US earnings growth. I mean, Europe has been hampered by a shrinking financial sector, a shrinking telecom sector, a shrinking big oil sector in terms of their earnings power, their cash flow power, their market cap, and their valuations. So it's not just tech. And these are all industries that are kind of seen as, um, you know, industries of the past, aren't yes. they? Yeah, they're um, seen as why, why is Europe so bad at producing technology companies, do you think? I think it's a cracking question. I mean, I think, I think you know, it's about clusters and, and DNA. And my own personal view is, uh, you know, beyond Shoreditch Roundabout, you know, where are the clusters <laughs> kind of thing? We have great clusters in this country, in the UK, yeah. you know, Cambridgeshire for science, we've got good clusters in food and whatever. But Europe's brilliant at luxury goods. But it's not massive. So, so Europe and Tom and Tom's spoken a lot about this in the past. Europe's lost the race in tech, in technology, in, in listed technology companies versus Silicon Valley versus America. It's lost that race, hands down. Actually, we think there's a new one uh, beginning, and I personally think it might be the next bubble, and it's worth Tom talking about that. Which Europe might just win. Which is Tom <laughs> climate. Right. And, and climate change. I think um, all of the noises from the EU and uh, the ECB under Madame Lagarde, they're all pointing to Europe's new mission being decarbonisation, leading the way across the world. You'll see things emerging from uh, what's known as the EU Green Deal, the EU Sustainable Taxonomy uh, Framework, which will have implications for asset management as well, actually. But you will see Europe formalise a framework for things called green bonds, uh, sustainable development goals, transition bonds. And all of these things are basically going to lower the cost of capital for any projects that are seen to be green and to the benefit of uh, the environment. Uh, and in doing that, that will lower the overall uh, cost of capital and probably push up those stock prices. And presumably if Trump gets back in, in the US, there's not going to be much competition coming from that angle is they <laughs> no although actually the us is is pushing on offshore wind energy mm. uh, off the the coast of the uh, eastern eastern seaboard so actually you are seeing some changes there but i think europe's definitely in the lead on the narrative 
and in trying to put these targets and um, the framework in place. And so, you know, when you think of uh, sectors that benefit from that in Europe, a very obvious one now is utilities. Mm. So European utilities have kind of gone from being relatively cheap, good dividend payers, relatively boring companies, where you always had a bit of a worry about regulatory headwinds. You know, the regulator coming in and saying you're earning too much from these assets and so on. That regulatory headwind is probably turning to a tailwind now because they need these utilities to lead the way in decarbonisation. So they need them to close the coal-fired plants. They need them to build offshore wind. They need them to build solar. They need them to invest in the networks and the grids because obviously there's a big push for the transition to electric vehicles as well. So um, that sector is one where, you know, arguably Europe, through its um, desire to, to lead the world in its green credentials, you know, starts to, uh, to look quite interesting. And that's somewhere where if you're a US investor looking to invest in Europe, you might start to think, ah, I, I need some exposure to Europe because mm. Europe's where the climate sort of uh, efforts are, are going on most intensely. And an, another factor that could put Europe back on the map is um, the shift from growth to value. That's been talked about for some time now, but it's it's not actually transpired. I just wondered what your thoughts are on that and what the current sort of makeup of the portfolios in terms of the split between growth and value. Yeah, I mean, it's in, it depends on who you ask, actually, and who measures the portfolio. We're told that at the moment we're, we're, we're screening as slightly tilted to growth. Well, however slight that tilt is, I wish it was a hell of a lot bigger in the last decade because uh, that's what's won. You know, growth, 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 and growth at any price and, and momentum and all of that. I mean, you know, Tom, Tom alluded to earlier what we, the kind of characteristics we tend to look for in a, in a company or a stock. There is a lot of change that goes on and, and some of the change is in, is in the value names. You don't, nec- you don't want a winning formula to change, do you? So a luxury goods growth stock or an ASML uh, in, in semiconductors, you don't, you don't want that to change because it's, it's purring along, the engine is, is there, it's, some of them are unique franchises. You're not looking for change. So we have, we think, sufficient growth stocks at quite fat multiples, incidentally, big multiples. What, what I actually don't think I've been particularly good at is closing my eyes at the multiples. I've always had this, you know, I've always been a bit too mean and tight to pay big multiples. Well, the big fat multiples just got bigger and fatter, mm. and that's what's happened in the last 10 years. But also, please beware of value in terms of as defined by a evaluation multiple. People will tell you European banks are cheap. I believe that, that in most cases they're cheap for a reason. People will say European telecoms are cheap. I believe they're cheap for a reason. So value is never just in a multiple. So I think our, our, our portfolios have always been a blend of value type names and growth type names. In, in, in terms of the number of stocks, 45 stocks as we speak, there are more value type names in number of stocks than there are growth type names in percent in terms of NEV it's 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 not quite as skewed to value because uh, we have some chunky positions in the more growthy names in terms of well, you know Europe outperforming because value comes back versus growth don't hold your breath for me I think you would need a new input to markets I and it's actually input to economies globally certainly in Europe for that to happen it's called inflation 
I think if inflation came back, the world, in stock market terms, the world gets turned upside down. All of those superstar growth managers, people will start to cross the street to avoid them. And all of those down in the dumps, lying face down in a ditch, value managers will get up if they're still in a career. But don't hold your breath because I, for one, don't see inflation in the near term. If inflation came back, it would have a huge effect on the shape of markets globally, i.e. value versus growth. Value, in my view, needs the oxygen of inflation for value to outperform. And if uh, Madame Lagarde gets away and we get modern monetary theory in Europe, do you think we could see a return of inflation? Well, (laughs) you know, I no longer know what modern monetary theory is because we've (laughs) gone into new paradigm after new paradigm. We have been printing money, QE, QE1, QE2, QE3, 4... We might even get the new a new phenomenon where QE starts central banks start buying green bonds, for example, which is which which plays into what Tom was talking about in terms of in terms of the whole environmental surge. So I, I don't really know what is modern and ultra modern and new paradigm. I mean, there's there some out there are talking helicopter money. I thought we already had that with QE one, two, three, and four, and it is interesting that these monetary experiments that we have had and we might get. Madame Lagarde's new one, they've actually not had an effect on RPI or CPI defined inflation. I would posit mm. that they have had an effect on financial asset price inflation. Asset price inflation. Mm. But at the but you know, for each I don't know, each an opposing force, for the force of Madame Lagarde or others on monetary policy, you know, you, we, we go back to Greenspan, Bernanke, etc. Successive Fed governors have been printing money, sanctioning the printing of money, and then you had it with Draghi in Europe, and it continues. But you've got opposing forces in terms of inflation, uh, deflationary forces. What are they? Debt. There's still too much debt in the world. And actually, in most places, it's grown. Take Italy. Mm. That's deflationary. Demographics, be they Japan, be they China, be they Southern Europe. So you've actually had that opposing force. And inflation hasn't yet Mm. broken out. And I would just repeat, be vigilant because it might break out. And if it does break out, honestly, you would see... Funds that have been darlings for the last 10 years probably rocket to the bottom of league tables because they're growth, growth, growth. Mm. And just going back to what you were saying about that, the rating expansion in some sectors of the market, one part of the market that you've spoken out against um, recently has been the, the sort of bond proxies, which a lot of investors are overweighting at the moment. I mean, a lot of people think that's a bubble that's waiting to bust once interest rates rise, but actually interest rates have been going in the opposite direction of late. So I just wondered what your take is on that part of the market now, because that's a part of the market that a lot of investors are really overweight in in those kinds of stocks at the moment. I don't know when I spoke out against them, but uh, I must have been in a bad mood because we own about (laughs) 5% of our fund in in Nestle. So, you know, we're we're not... against them. One of the things you've got to do as a fund manager is is definitely don't be arrogant and don't dig in. You've got to recognise the regime that you're in. If you've been a deep value manager and had said over the last 10 years, these bond proxies are nuts, you're possibly out of a job. And and you know if you say well, banks are cheap, autos are cheap, value, 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 you're not going to last very long or you probably haven't lasted too well in the last 10 years. So we are quite pragmatic. We recognise that there are certain multiples out there that are puffed up, not because of the business growth prospects or the business worth, mm. but because they're trading off exactly what you've just talked about, the long end of the yield curve, they're called bond proxies. 
you've just got to make sure you've got enough of them that you stay in the game, even if you question that they should continue to re-raise. Mm. Now, we don't have a lot of them, but we have had sufficient to make sure we don't get completely left behind. This is really important. I think you need to, you do learn in your career that don't be all one side of the, of, of the boat. You know, don't be extreme value or don't be extreme growth because when that wind does change, you know, you, you can get really, really caught. We've always been blend. Some would say bland, but we've always been blend and said we've got enough ballast in, in what we do. And I would include, say, a Nestle, the role it plays within our portfolio as ballast. Mm. Uh, moving on to something slightly different, you've always described yourself as a passionate believer in the, the investment stru uh, trust structure. What is it about that structure that makes it such a great vehicle, in your opinion? My very first client, my very first mandate to run, to manage in money management was a, was a, a small cap investment trust. So there might be that still playing in my mind hmm. that it was my first baby sort of thing. But it's more than that. They're a beautiful structure one you don't get subscriptions and redemptions and and i you know after the last 30 odd years you get to know the kind of investor in an investment trust versus the kind of investment in a ccav the kind of investor in an open-ended and the kind of investor in an investment trust tends to be more patient they tend to ask you different questions not what have you done for me this morning what does the next quarter look like they kind of get it and even if they don't get it and they decide it's time to go, you're not getting redemptions as a fund manager. Yes, they can sell the shares and, and, and they should if they're not, you know, they're not, if they're uncomfortable or something better comes along. They should sell and they will sell. But you don't get hit with redemptions and you don't get hit with, with, uh, with, with inflow. That, for me, is the number one beauty of them. Then it comes along with, well, you can be tactical in the use of gearing. That is also uh, helpful. And then that third point, which I've already mentioned, is the type of investor. They tend to be more patient. Mm. It, is a, it is a different type of investor that tends to show up wanting to own an investment trust. The investors tend to understand the vehicle very well indeed. Yes, you'll get the discount players and, and all that sort of stuff, but I've loved the last, you know, since I, since I first did it in Edinburgh with a, with a small cap investment trust, it's why I wanted to manage which was then called Gartmore European when I got it, and then it was Henderson European Focus, and now it's Janice Henderson European Focus. I did want to run that ten years ago when I when I when I uh, when I got the opportunity, because they are they're a beautiful structure for the fund manager and the end investor. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you look for is uh, inflection points, and I just wondered if you can give some examples, some past examples in the portfolio where um, that type of situation has. Played off for you. It's probably Carlsberg, classic, isn't it? Absolutely. Tom's absolutely right. It's a classic example. Carlsberg came to us, and it was interesting. One of my colleagues in the desk said, "John, I'm looking at Carlsberg. We have a Wednesday investment meeting, and so, and at the end of the investment meeting, I always say to the guys, "What's in your pipeline? What are you looking at? What's up and coming? What will we be discussing in the next few weeks?" And I'm looking at this, that, the other. And I was really struck when Simon said, "I'm, I'm actually looking at Carlsberg." And I went, "Wow." I've really spent a career avoiding that company. I felt it was undermanaged, its margins reflected that. He said, yeah, but this chap from Unilever has just gone in as CEO and here's the new CFO. And I said, I know that CFO from ISS in Denmark. That's interesting, kind of liked what he did there. Yeah, and this is the great beauty of investment. Things change, 
companies change, businesses change. Some are in existential crisis and won't get out of it, but others can do something about it. The beer business is a good beer. I mean, Tom and I are a bit biased because we like beer. Um, <laughs> and we understand beer and it can be a great business. Look at Heineken's margins. Mm. Look at AB InBev. Look at the families that have... You know, we were speaking to AB InBev the other day and they said this family, the Belgian side of the business, the Belgian family has been involved in the business 600 years and wants to be involved for the next 600 years. And that's not just romance. That, you know, beer, beer run well can be a very nice business. And Carlsberg, we felt, was not run well. And it was on 12%-ish EBIT margins. And, and, and Heineken, which isn't the most optimized, wonderful beer business on the planet, but it was on mid-teens. And we saw the targets and we thought, how credible are their targets? And we thought they were very credible. And that became a very meaningful position for us within the portfolio. We've taken profit. It has uh, performed extremely well. But that's an example of, you know, don't buy into awful franchises because even the best management will struggle. Mm. But if it's a reasonable, good, or currently average or underperforming franchise within an, an industry that, that tends to be cash generative, et cetera, et cetera, give it the right management, you've actually got, the odds in your favour. You know, this whole business is about trying to get the odds in your favour. And that was a cracking example. What you've got to watch is the sort of, you know, the perennial turnarounds that are going to, they tend, those are the kind of things that will turn around for 18 months and then reality takes over a French car company or, or something like that. Those can be ephemeral. Those can be 12 to 18 month turnaround stories. Yes, you can make 15, 100%, but the minute you buy it, I would say a French car stock or something like that. The minute you buy it, you're always asking myself, gosh, I better, better remember to sell. <laughs> Recently, we've had the outbreak of coronavirus, which has uh, sent jitters through markets. I just wondered what your take on that is and what the significance is for, you know, for, for equity markets over the long term. Are we going to go into a more protracted downturn in China? And is that going to impact Euro uh, the European markets through, particularly through um, things like German exports and that kind of thing? Could do. <clears throat> But I think so far, the behaviour of the market suggests that people are willing to look through it. And I think aided by increased liquidity, so Chinese stimulus, the likelihood that if things get too bad, probably the central banks step in. But then also, you know, not just the cynical stuff, but all being well, it will be a short term impact on markets and it will not fundamentally break or alter the business models of, of many of the companies. What it does do, I think, is you mentioned bond proxies earlier. And when you think people are, are highly exposed to these things, it creates some nuances within the bond proxies. So staples, quite uh, relying on China for mm. growth. Mm -hmm. They're challenged at the minute. Mm. They have been challenged. In fact, Pernod Ricard this morning gave the sort of best effort so far of any of its peer group. Well, so Unilever underperforming recently as well. Yeah, yeah, Unilever put it down to, I think there was India, there's things going on in Africa. I don't think they were quite as explicit about coronavirus. Mm. Certainly not as much as Perno this morning, which said, we're taking 3% off our operating profit right. guidance for the year for coronavirus. Um, actually, the stock's, the stock's up on it. Right. Because clearly people, people are, are expecting anticipating, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that there's going to be a hit to the guidance. and because they've come out with a, the best efforts, uh, honest assessment that they can give, actually there's a bit of relief. Um, but it does mean that if you want to continue to be exposed to, let's say bond proxies or, or stocks with broadly similar attributes, mm. you've got to now think about, well, I want to, relatively speaking, not be in those that are more exposed to China and coronavirus mm. versus those 
that aren't. And, and a good one there is, as we've already mentioned, is Staples versus U- European Utilities. Mm. European Utilities is very much a European-only uh, story. You know, obviously they have some assets elsewhere, but you're relatively protected there probably from coronavirus mm. within similar sort of defensive slash bond proxies. And finally, uh, I just wanted to get your view on the current situation with Boris um, attempting to secure a trade deal with the uh, with the EU. Do you think that um, he's going to get one? Do you think he's going to get a good one if he does? Um, and what are the implications for European markets, if any? Uh, this is de- definitely sounds like a disclaimer and a career <laughs> disclaimer. Absolutely zero value to add whatsoever. Uh, and that's not, I'm not saying full stop, hopefully, but I'm sort of saying on that kind of thing. You know, let, 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 let's say you and I knew the outcome of the Brexit vote back in 2016. We'd go out and set up a portfolio. We'd have set up hmm. entirely their own portfolio. And I see it so many times with, with geopolitics in Europe. If you, you think that this is going to be the outcome, that's going to be the outcome. We can all have our view, and I, I really don't mean at all to belittle the conversation. I actually think it's dinner party conversation, that sort of stuff. Mm. It's not relevant, I don't think, to financial markets. Now, and again, even if you knew the outcome, you'd probably set up, you'd probably set up the, wrong, the wrong portfolio. I, I think, I've always said this as well, it'll play out largely through the currency market. So let's say... This really does turn out to be a hard Brexit. Okay, I'm I'm in the camp that, that that thinks the French, in particular, want to hand out a punishment beating. So, as as we're probably all going to discover when we travel there in the summer, with the gendarmes being particularly energetic. But let's say they do, and that and it is a punishment beating, and 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 it's a it's a bad it's a bad trade deal, whatever that is. I think that'll play out through sterling. And if that's right, if that's right, and again, already we're into the, the realms of wild guesses because nobody's got any value to add on this stuff, then if we're right on that and sterling falls, the FTSE goes up, doesn't it? Mm. The FTSE 100 goes up, but the domestics don't. So I think you can have a view on it, and I think that view is probably best expressed through currency markets, and that's it for me. I, mm. I, I think it, the job is hard enough trying to assemble 45 stocks with their idiosyncratic stock-specific special sets type of DNA is what we have. Once you and I've I've learned this the hard way. Once you drift into macro, and especially euro macro, you tend to get lost as an mm. investor. I think one one thing where it might be of interest to investors is if, for example, if we, we do get a good trade deal and the pound actually rises, yes. in which case there, there's a bit of a headwind for you yes. guys, isn't there? Because you yes. know, obviously translating that back into sterling. Do you guys hedge your portfolio, for example? We, we, we don't. I'll tell you why we don't hedge it. We have no, A, first and foremost, 90% of the reason we don't hedge is we've got no skill set. We there, there isn't a single person on the desk who has an interest in in, in currency speculation. The, the DNA of the desk is stocks, stocks, stocks. And you've got to make sure you're focused on what what you think you're good at. Mm. And and there's because there's a lot of things out there that you know you're bad at. And one of one of them for me would be guesswork on on, on, on currencies. So ninety percent of the reason is why would we bother we don't have the skill set. Ten percent of the reason is our benchmark. At the end of the day, this is really, really important point. Why do investors come to active managers like ourselves? And in increasing droves, they're going to passive. Mm. Well they come to us because they think that we can beat a benchmark index and, and thankfully over the last 10 or so years that we've run European Focus Trust, we've, you know, if you take a 10-year view, it's been rather nice that we've beat the benchmark index. And we think we can do the same. My benchmark is unhedged. Now, 
I know for a fact, if I go and, let's say I hedge everything back to sterling, if I get that wrong, my performance versus an unhedged benchmark is damaged very badly. And therefore, I believe I'm giving the investors something they don't want. Mm. What they want is us to beat a benchmark index over time. Otherwise, why would you bother giving money to an active manager? Okay. Thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thank you. Pleasure. Cheers. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Before investing in any investment referred to in this podcast, you should satisfy yourself as to its suitability and the risks involved. Nothing in this podcast is a recommendation or solicitation to buy, hold or sell any investment. Tax assumptions and reliefs depend upon an investor's particular circumstances and may change if those circumstances or the law change. Issued in the UK by Janice Henderson Investors. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by Henderson Investment Funds Limited. Registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M 3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Janice Henderson, Janice, Henderson and Knowledge Shared are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC.